If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the first of what we hope might become a short, regular series, we're asking leading historians to answer the questions you've always wanted to know about some of the big topics in history. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at History Extra to see what subjects we're covering and which experts we have lined up. First up, we've got Mark Morris talking about the Normans and the Norman Conquest. Mark is a leading medieval historian who's written books on both the Norman Conquest and William I. Our content director, David Musgrove, who also has a book coming out this autumn, co-written by Michael Lewis on the Bayeux Tapestry, put the questions to Mark. Okay, so we are trying something a bit different here with this uh, bonus History Extra podcast. Um, it's uh, a new a new thing we're going to do, which is uh, everything you wanted to know about a topic, but uh, we're afraid to ask, or something along those lines, uh, where we we're going to ask uh, leading historians to pick um, important topics from history and answer the questions that, uh, that you really want to know. So today we've got Mark Morris, and he's going to be talking to us about the Normans and the Norman Conquest. So Mark Morris is, of course... Uh, a famous medieval historian, written lots of great books, um, including uh, The Norman Conquest, so a, a definitive title on one of the topics that we're talking about, and also The Penguin Monarchs, uh, William I, so in that Penguin Monarch series. So uh, a great chap to talk about. And he's also uh, currently uh, just finishing off his new book, which is Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginning of England, uh, which is going to be published in autumn 2020. So, Mark, tell us about that. What's uh, How's that book going and uh, and what's that going to be talking about? It's fairly obvious from the title, I guess. Yeah, it's going to be talking about the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> it's, 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 it's nearly finished. I've got just sort of really just do the conclusion and then edit it, proofread it, et cetera, index it, find some maps. Um, yeah, it, it was a sort of natural outgrowth of doing the conquest. I was either going to go forwards or backwards. Um and it's an attempt to do a sort of continuous narrative. There are, of course, lots of books on the Anglo-Saxons. So they tend to be sort of 
um, because it's such a, a long period, six, seven hundred years, um, they tend to be sort of quite um, magazine-y and um, this was an attempt to sort of find a narrative line through. So it, 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 it emphasises certain characters and, 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 and uh, it, 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 a lot ends up on the cutting room floor when you do that, obviously. But I, I hope that it will sort of give people who are unfamiliar with that, that world a sort of a, a clear path through or a steer through that will lead them to sort of, you know, um, other books on the subject. Anyway, I've enjoyed writing it and it should be coming out in about six months. Brilliant. Well, we will look forward to that and hopefully we'll have you back to talk in more depth about it. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so we've taken a load of questions from our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram fans on History Extra. And I've also just culled a few of the most popular searches uh, from Google as to what people look for um, uh, when they uh, type in uh, The Normal Conquest. So I'm going to combine a few of those. So we're just, I'm just going to hit you with a bunch of questions and you can answer them uh, as you see fit. So first question, and this comes from my friend uh, G. Oogle. Um, mm-hmm. uh, who won the Battle of Hastings and why? Oh, this is an easy one because we're still fairly confident about the answer. Um, the, the, the winner of the Battle of Hastings, we're still reasonably satisfied, was William, Duke William of Normandy, later known as the Conqueror. Uh, why? I mean, the contemporary answer would have been because God favoured him. You know, when you went to battle in the Middle Ages, you're putting your dispute to the judgment of God. Men don't decide battles. God decides the outcome of battles. Um, so God had decided, according to contemporary minds, that his claim to the throne of England was the greater one. Um, why, in terms of um, you know the way we would analyse it now, superior generalship, um, in that um, William held his line together while Harold's line started to break up. Um, the, but the, one of the principal reasons, of course, is luck. I mean, you know, the one of the, the, the what ultimately decides the battle battle is William survives it and Harold dies on the battlefield. So, and that that with lots of projectile missiles flying around, that could have gone either way. Um, so, yeah, combination of good generalship, um, luck, and having having God decide that your claim is superior. Okay, a couple more from Google, and I'm going to combine them. So uh, there was a, a question: uh, Who were the Normans, and where did they come from? And then, there's also another popular Google search: Is are Normans and Vikings the same? So you could probably um, uh, answer yeah, those questions. Them. So the Normans, I mean, Norman is is the same root as the word Norseman or Northman. So in a sense, they were Vikings. I mean, they had the, Normandy is the area Neustria of of of, of Francia. So it's the part of Francia which is settled by um, invaders from Scandinavia from the late 9th, early 10th centuries. Um, but like questions about uh, the Vikings in England, who, who similarly settle uh, sort of northeastern and eastern parts of England, the question boils down to how many came and what impact did they have on the, the indigenous peoples? So clearly when the Normans arrive in Normandy, they don't eradicate or expel all the native population. They settle down and marry into that population. And we, we, the, 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 the uh, numbers of people that did that, uh, we can't recover now. There simply isn't the data. Um, so, yes, the Normans, um, particularly the elite of Normandy, kind of gloried to some extent in their Viking past. Um, but they very quickly take on Frankish traits, Christian traits. So whereas, the, the for example, the first Duke of the Normans or the first ruler of the Normans, later called a Duke, is Rolf or Rollo, who has a good traditional Scandinavian Viking name. But he calls his son William. William calls his son Richard. Richard calls his son Richard, etc. So you have Williams, Richards and Roberts there, all of which are Frankish names and Christian names. And they adopt Christianity and they start founding monasteries by the end of the 10th century. So they start building castles. They start fighting on horseback. So they're they're adopting to all these um, Frankish customs. So, yes, they're ancestrally Viking. But they are quite different, especially by the time we get to 1066. Whilst there were other writers in Francia who would still denigrate them by saying, "Oh, Normans, you know, they're little—they're just little better than scrubbed-up Vikings." There's still a sense among rival Frankish um, uh, principalities that these were, you know, the descendants of barbarians. But the Normans themselves considered themselves very cutting-edge and sophisticated because they'd taken on all this Frankish culture in the meantime. So quite a difference between Normans and Norsemen by the time you get 
1066. Okay. Right. So we're going to take our first uh, reader question. This is asked by Paul Sansusi. Uh, and his question is, did Edward, uh, and uh, he's referring to Edward the Confessor, make a commitment to William or was William merely being opportunistic when deciding to invade? Uh, and then he's got a follow-up question. If that is so, why did the Witten ratify Harold's selection by Edward? So this requires a little bit of um, explanation, I guess, but it's basically uh, also answering a Google question which is why did the Normans invade England? Yeah, I mean, it's well, the short answer to the Google question, why did the Normans invade, is because in 1066, the succession of England was disputed. So that's the, that's the bottom line. We have a disputed succession because the Edward you mentioned, King Edward the Confessor, famously, although he reigned for a long time, uh, for um, 25, 20, 24, 25 years, um, he famously doesn't produce any children, doesn't produce any sons. So he leaves. He has a succession problem. Um, and the way he seems to have preferred... I say seems because the, 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 none of the evidence for this is completely incontrovertible, but the way he seems to, to want to solve it is in uh, 1051, he falls out with his very powerful father-in-law and brothers-in-law, the Godwinsons, or Earl Godwin and his sons, if you prefer, and expels them. And the Godwin plan, because Edward is married to Godwin's daughter, Edith, um, the Godwin plan had been, well, Edith will produce children with Edward and there'll be lots of little Godwins running around. And, you know, by a process of, of, of sort of, um, you know, marrying into the, the ancient royal family of Wessex, England, um, that will solve the succession. But Edward doesn't have anything to do with that. And again, historians will say, well, perhaps he or she, they were just, as a couple, infertile. What was said at the time was, um, by by a, a tract commissioned by Edith herself, was that uh, they hadn't produced any children because Edward hadn't slept with her. So um, Edward's preferred solution in 1051 is he invites William to come to England. Now, that seems, the evidence for that is very solid because it's mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Although no English sources directly discuss Edward having promised the throne to William, um, there is a version of the Chronicle, the D version of the Chronicle, that says William came to England in the winter of 1051-1052 and talked with Edward about the things they needed to talk about. And um, Edward received him as a vassal and then he went home again. Um, so there's definitely that contact in that crucial period where the Godwins are expelled. So, yes, to answer the, 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 the reader's question or the Twitter question, um, I think the Norman and the English sources together and, and Edward's behaviour and the Godwin's behaviour strongly suggest that William did make a promise of the throne to, uh, to William in uh, 1051, 1052. But then the Godwins come back in 1052. There's Godwin um, uh, revanche and they take, effectively, I think they, they reduce Edward to a rubber stamp at that point. I think for the last 14 years of his reign, he's little more than a Godwin cipher. And I think that explains why the the, 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 the Witan, as your questioner called it, the King's Council, decided to go a different way in 1066 because the Godwin's power after 1052 grows inexorably. So, you you know, you, they start off in 1050, 1052 when, when old Earl Godwin dies. He dies in 1053, rather. They start off at that point with one earldom, the earldom of Wessex, which Harold inherits. But by the end of the 1060s, they have four earldoms, all four Godwin brothers who aren't either dead or in prison, um, have an earldom each. And they have this vast kind of powerful, all-controlling affinity of friends and supporters. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is a supporter, the Archbishop of York by 1060 is a Godwinson man. So, you know, who's going to say no to the Godwins when um, Edward finally shuffles off in 1066 and say, oh, actually, I think this should go to, a, you know, a, a Norman duke? Um, this is something that they've been... They've been um, tilting at for 10, 15 years or more, 20 years perhaps. So I think that's why, you know, the, the people in, in around, around the king in 1066, they're not interested in, in um, you know, uh, honouring some promise that, that Edward made when he was um, uh, free of Godwin control. They're interested in having the man they want to rule the kingdom. So there you go, long answer. Brilliant. Okay, so uh, the upshot of that, of course, is that uh, William invades, 
uh, and we get to the Battle of Hastings. So we'll move on to a few Battle of Hastings questions. And the most uh, obvious one is, why was the Battle of Hastings called the Battle of Hastings? Ah, well, this is straightforward, as you say. Um, William, so William lands at Pevensey on the 27th or 28th of September, 1066. Um, he only spends a day or so there. He moves immediately east to Hastings, where he makes his camp. So the Normans, you know, this is where the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle locates the Normans at Hastings. And when Harold marches down to confront him, Harold's plan, it seems, is to uh, uh, attack the Normans' camp, to catch them unawares, as he had caught um, the other invaders of 1066, the Norwegian king Harold Hardrada is caught off guard by Harold surprising him. So Harold seems to favour the, um, you know, ta-da, surprise attack, it's King Harold, and everyone ends up dead. Um, but in the case of um, William, William uh, discovers that Harold is on the march and leaves his camp early in the morning of the 14th of October 1066 and intercepts uh, Harold as he's approaching. So they end up fighting at some previously nondescript spot, which the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle simply says it was they met at the site of the old apple tree. Um, but since ever since the, the battle was fought, of course, it's been known as Batum, uh, battle, rather, <laughs> not Batum, Bellum uh, in Latin, battle. Uh, so it's the site of the modern town of battle is where the battle was fought. And that leads on to uh, the next question by uh, asked by David Rogers, which uh, is the traditional location for the Battle of Hastings at Battle, as you said, correct. So there have been some people which have uh, have questioned whether it's in the right place at all. Short answer, yes. I mean, as you say, the, tra- the tra- traditionally the battle was thought to have been thought at Battle because it's called Battle and there's a socking great abbey there, uh, which was built by William the Conqueror to mark the site of the battle. So for hundreds of... 900 years or more, not almost 950 years, everyone was content with this tradition. Um, and then, I mean, the, 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 there's no better word really to say if you if you think otherwise, you fall into the category of conspiracy theorists because you have to dismiss a lot of good contemporary evidence. Uh, the main one being, I mean, this the, the, the conspiracy theory, as I will call it, um, hinges on saying, well, there is no evidence that... Uh, or they're rather the story that the that Battle Abbey, the altar of Battle Abbey, was built on the spot where Harold fell. This is a confection made up in the late 12th century by the author of the Battle Abbey Chronicle, uh, which is an unreliable source, so they say, and therefore this is late evidence and must be ruled out of contention. And that's just not true. If you go back through the Chronicles, um, Right back to the early 12th century, you can see the same story. I mean, William of Malmesbury, for example, who's writing in the 1120s, says that that, uh, that the altar of the abbey was situated on the spot where Harold fell. But you can push it back even further than that. The author of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, who was writing, demonstrably writing before 1100, um, in his obituary for William, says, on the very spot, on Van Ilkenstjorda, my Anglo-Saxon pronunciation is terrible, but on then Ilkenstjoda, on the very spot where God granted him the, the conquest of England, he caused a great abbey to be built. Now, you know, that's not only a, an early source, it's an English source. You know, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in, in its obituary for William doesn't have, well, I was going to say it doesn't have a great deal of positive. It has some positive things to say about William, but it also has a lot of critical things to say. There's no reason for this author to be inventing this tale. So you can put, push the tradition that William built the abbey on the spot where Harold fell right back to William's own lifetime. Uh, that, that same obituarist says, you know, how should we describe William? We who have lived at his court and looked upon him with our own eyes. You know, so it's 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 as close to a good, reliable contemporary source as you can get. Um, and you've still got the abbey there, of course, marking the spot. Which and it's in a stupid place to build an abbey. It's on the side of a hill. You know, it's it, it, the the tradition, the later tradition that the monks wanted to build it somewhere else, and William told them no, it has to go on that particular um, awkward spot. Fits very well with the, the the layout, the topography of the abbey. So both the archaeology or both the, the architecture and the 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 the, the, the um, chronicle tradition fit very well with that's where the battle was fought 
Okay, so English heritage can rest easy that they've got the right place for their battle. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, uh, Harold Hardrada just then. That leads on to the next question from Chris George. Why did uh, Godwinson, Harold Godwinson, choose to make his stand so soon after Stamford Bridge, so the, the battle that Harold had to fought in the fight in the north? Well, I don't think he had any choice. I mean, you know, Harold's in a very difficult position in 1066. Um, and... He he knows about the the looming Norman invasion because William makes no secret of it from the start of 1066. You know, by February March 1066, he's seeking or obta- has obtained permission from the Pope or the blessing from the Pope, you might say, and he's building, assembling um, an armada of ships. He's recruiting men throughout the summer. So all this is happening in plain sight on the other side of the Channel. What take what doesn't seem to 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 um, Cross his radar at all is the fact that the Norwegians are planning to do the same. And the, the Norwegians, being more of a, a, a seaborne power in any case, seem to assemble this very quickly. So William has all his um, manpower, all his ships concentrated on the south coast, dismisses them um, in early September 1066 um, because, as the chronicle says, he couldn't hold them together anymore. He'd held them together throughout the whole of the late spring and summer. And then Within days of having dismissed this huge force, he's told that the Norwegians have invaded and are, you know, menacing York. So he has to rush up to to Yorkshire to confront them and does, as as is well known, does spectacularly well, surprises them, um, kills Harold Hardrada, the king of Norway, who is one of the most fearsome warriors of his age. Also, uh, his um, younger brother, Tostig Godwinson, Harold's younger brother, falls in the course of the battle. Um so he's Harold is responding to this this very rapidly developing situation, but then within a few days of the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which is the twenty fifth of September, ten sixty six, he learns that the Normans have landed on the twenty seventh of September, ten sixty six. So however long that news takes to travel from Sussex to Yorkshire, which is about three hundred miles, say three or four days, with the swiftest running horse, you know. Um, he he's re, he realizes he has to go down south and do exactly the same again, and and to, I think I saw because you sent me an email of the questions to sort of to run on ahead and anticipate one of the next ones is you know why why did he do that why didn't he send someone else um, you just can't do that if you're king in the Middle Ages you know your Harold's whole the whole point of Harold as a strong candidate for the kingship in January 1066, is that he's not a sort of 12-year-old boy with a stronger blood claim. It's that he's a man in his 40s who's a proven experience, not only in government, but in warfare. He's the man who conquered Wales, you know. So he's seen to be a strong pair of hands. You can't suddenly say, oh, I've got a bit of a gammy leg, or, you know, I'm feeling a bit under the weather. I, I'm, I'm going to send someone else to fight the Normans. Um Kings who do that, you know, you can find the odd example of kings who do that successfully, but that it tends to to um, affect their reputation very badly. Um, Fifty years before 1066, you have the death of Ethelred the Unready, who was a king who shirked battle. Um, 150 years after 1066, you have King John, who who is a sort of almost a brave Sir Robin type figure, adept at running away when, you know, danger rears its ugly head. So you have to lead from the front. It's inconceivable that Harold would have said, well, I'm going to send my brother Leofwine or Gerth to fight this battle for me. So he has to go down and engage William personally. So that's why uh, the timing and the pace of events is dictated by William Landing. Okay. Uh We'll move on to uh, to the next one. It's quite a specific reading of uh, of, a, of a bit of the battle. Who uh, and this is from uh, Johnny H. Who led the? Who, he asked who led the last stand at the Malfoss, which is uh, supposedly a deep ditch where the pursuing Normans were butchered as the battle ended. And then he uh, goes on to say nobody knows where the were Earls Edwin, Waltoff, and Morcar were. So, um, uh, fairly detailed question, um, but uh, fairly detailed question. But unfortunately, we don't have fairly detailed sources about the Malfoss. Um, so. It's- it's unanswerable, I'm afraid. I mean, the Malfoss sort of much debated. Was it during the battle? Was it after the battle? I mean, it seems that the, the, it's actually the, the Battle Abbey Chronicle that I mentioned earlier, and um, I think Orderic Vitalis. It's a long time since I wrote this book. Um, but those two later chroniclers describe it in some detail. Contemporary chroniclers 
don't. Um, or maybe William of Poitier mentions it. But the thing is, none of them will go into the kind of detail that your questioner requires. So it, it all is said is that, you know, after it is actually William of Poitier who was writing close to events. Um, he talks about the Normans pursuing the English throughout the night into the darkness and several of the Normans falling into this invisible um, obstacle, this, this this ancient rampart or ditch. Um, but it's just something that seems to happen in the route. I mean, that, 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 that maybe that, that some of the um, English troops kind of saw this as a point where they could mount us a, a sort of last line of defence, but we're not told the names of any of the leaders at that point. Harold is dead. Harold is dead by this point, and the rest of the English are fleeing. As for the earls um, Edwin and Morcar, it seems, to, I mean, it's very unlikely, it seems to me, that they were on the battlefield at all. It depends on how you read a particular line of, of, of a later chronicler, John of Worcester. Um, and, you know, you can charitably say, well, yes, they were probably there, but it, se- it seems unlikely they were there because they are, they are with the rest of the English resistance in London um, for, the, for the, the next bit of the story. So unless they sort of hot-footed it from Hastings back to London, which is possible, it seems much more likely that they just didn't make it in time down to Hastings. Um, and they were kind of fair-weather friends of Harold anyway. Traditionally, the, um, their family had been um, uh, the major rivals to the Godwinsons. So um, short answer, we don't know a lot about the Malfoss and certainly no individuals are named as having died or defended it. Yeah, okay. And I think in the biotapestry, it the Malfoss looks like it might be mid-battle. There is that, that famous bit where the horses are all tumbling headfirst into That's a ditch. That's right, so... and that may be an attempt on the part of the tapestry artist to show that kind of Malfoss scene. Um, and I, th- I, I say, I, this is a, sorry, it's a long time since I wrote the book, so I, these kind of footnotey questions have faded from my mind somewhat. But I have a feeling that, that might, the tapestry might, affect a later narrative source that places the Malfoss mid-battle. Um, but as I say, the early... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% certain now that the earliest description of it is William of Poitiers, who's writing in the early 1070s, so within five or six years of the battle, and he talks about it as happening, having happened after the event. So there's no... I think there's no doubt that it happened in the route as they were running away. OK. Um, but the sources aren't mention no individuals. Sure. Okay. Uh, a popular Google question: How long did the Battle of Hastings last in hours specifically? Specifically, we don't know, but we're told it's, it lasted from the sort of like um, I think maybe one of the chroniclers says from the third hour of the day. It's not from sunrise. It's sort of because it's not from sunrise because the Normans have to reach the battlefield, so they have to march the six miles, six and a half miles from battle to sorry from Hastings to battle. So that's going to take them two or three hours. Um, so it can't start much before nine o'clock in the morning if they leave at sunrise. This is, you know, October, remember. So if they if they march when the, when the sun comes up. Um, but we are told by the contemporary chroniclers, both William of Poitiers and um, I think the song of the Battle of Hastings, the Carmen, that the battle goes on until um, day was turning into night. So basically, you know, dusk so about four or five o'clock in october so it goes on for you know eight hours nine hours of course you know there's no point where someone once harold dies there's no sense in which someone blows a whistle and says that's it you know exchange shirts shake hands the battle continues it becomes a rout which we're told lasts throughout the night so if you like you could say it lasts 24 hours or you know but if the battle is seen to have been decided when Harold uh, dies, um, then Harold dies, you know, to, to sort of pinch from Monty Python uh, about tea time. Okay. Right. Uh, a quick one on the Bayer Tapestry. The Bayer Tapestry, of course, famously shows the uh, the Battle of Hastings and the uh, and the run-up to it. And the question from Karen P is, what's the missing bit of the Bayer Tapestry? So she's referring, no doubt, to the to the missing end section. Yeah, unless there's a bit in the middle that she knows about and we don't that's been nicked. Um, no, it's just the ending. Um, the tapestry, I mean, the tapestry is just, uh, I, I won't go on about it for very long, but the tapestry is just the most amazing survival to have nearly 70 metres of embroidery from nearly a millennium ago is just astonishing. Um, so we're lucky that we have any of it, never mind nearly 70 metres. But because it was sort of subject to a fair amount of wear and tear, I suspect 
a lot of the wear and tear that it, that suffered was from not so much from the medieval period, but from the period, say, from the late 18th century when it became famous and was bundled around a lot, taken to Paris, exhibited at the Louvre. Um, you know, it had plays put on about it in Paris during the Napoleonic period. It was taken back to um, Bayeux, where it was sort of displayed very badly on a spindle. Um, you know, so I, I can see and it, in, during the French Revolution, it was very nearly cut up and turned into bunting. So I can see how all these kind of um, much later, early modern or modern adventures or misadventures, you know, would have caused bits of it to fall off. The reason it survived so well for the previous 700 years was because it was kept in Bayer Cathedral and only taken out on the Feast of the Relics. So it was well curated, if you like, um, for the first seven centuries of its existence. Um, so, but, you know, so having said all of that, um, so we're lucky that most of it survives. What seems to be en- missing is the ending. It ends with Harold's death. There's a, there's a fairly heavily restored part that says, and then the English flee. Um, the obvious scene everyone has always thought which it, sh- which it would have ended with is William's coronation in Harold's place. Um, because we start off, the, 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 the tapestry starts off with an enthroned king, Edward the Confessor, talking to someone who seems to be Harold Godwinson. Um, it has an enthroned king in the middle, Harold himself, uh, once he's uh, taken the throne. And it is, therefore it makes sense that it would end with William being crowned in Harold's place. So that seems to be the missing last scene. And I think many people over the years have tried to recreate that scene in one medium or another. They've created their own embroidered ones or Lego ones or what have you. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The source that William of Poitiers is using, a source I mentioned earlier, the Carmen, the song of the Battle of Hastings, which we think now was made before the spring of 1068. So it's the most contemporary source of all talks about Harold getting killed by a Norman death squad. Half a dozen or so men led by William go up to him and sort of and, and single him out and hack him down. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Okay, so uh, 
couple of uh, a couple of questions on Harold himself. Uh, one asked by Simon Beale, who I think is a history teacher, and another by Laura Ford. Uh, and it's basically uh, how did Harold die? Um, apparently, it's the main thing that students ask. Um, and uh, uh, so it's uh, so he wants a, a top level historian to give the answer. So how did Harold die? Well, how did, okay. So the very short answer is we don't know, or we don't know for certain. Um, then there's a much longer, more complicated answer, which I'll try and get as short as possible. So the famous, it, it, it's famously, uh, it's well known that uh, Harold died with an arrow in the eye because that's the way he's depicted on the Bayer tapestry. But then once you start to unpick that, as people have been doing for at least 60, 70 years now, people say, well, is he? Is he the actually the figure on the tapestry under the word Harold? which uh, seems to show a figure with an arrow lodged in his eye, or is he another figure a few um, feet further along the tapestry who is being run down by a Norman on horseback? Um, If you accept that he is the figure, likely to be the figure under the word Harold, then there's people will say, well, hang on, is that really an arrow in his eye? Because if you look at the stitching or the holes on the back of the tapestry, it seems it might be... um, uh, you know, a spear that has been reinterpreted as an arrow by 19th century restorers. Um, all of these, so you can lodge all these caveats for the the, the, the Bayer Tapestry's representation. Um, what does it for me, what sort of undermines my faith in the tapestry is not so much these. So if you accept that the tapestry artist intended to show um, Harold as getting an arrow in the eye, and uh, that's what that scene depicts, the problem for me is essentially that the tapestry is an artistic source that borrows heavily from other artistic sources. We're as as convinced as we can be that it was made in uh, Canterbury because at least a dozen of the scenes are borrowed from illustrated manuscripts that were held in either Christchurch or St Augustine's Canterbury. Um, so the tapestry designer would say to somebody, "Oh, I need a I need a meal scene. You know, the, the the Normans are having dinner here. Go and find me a picture of some chaps having a meal." And someone would come back and say, "Well, here's a picture of the Last Supper." And they say, "Well, brilliant. Well, we can use that as a as a model for this scene." And that's what you can see that happening in lots of scenes. With the death of Harold, we seem to see that going on because the scenes surrounding it look very similar to. Um, a, a story in the apocrypha of the Bible of the king of the death of King Zedekiah. And now, you know, you know the story of the death of King Zedekiah. Everyone else knows this. So I won't go into that in any detail. But um, but it's, it's basically he's a king. He's a king who rebels against his overlord. And his punishment is to have his eyes put out. He's blinded. So if as it seems likely, the tapestry artist was using an example of uh, an illustrated example of the death of King Zedekiah. Then it may just be that Harold getting his eye put out was being borrowed from this artistic source. The real stumbling block for the, the arrow in the eye story is that no other contemporary source mentions an arrow in the eye. Later sources do. So um, off the top of my head, Henry of Huntingdon talks about him getting an arrow in the eye or an arrow in the face. Sometimes they're not even specific. They say an arrow in the face, an arrow in the brain. Um, Arrow in the eye becomes the sort of standard um, description. But there aren't any contemporary sources that tell us how he died. William of Poitiers, who has a very detailed account of the battle, just says the report Harold is dead flew around the battlefield. doesn't go into any detail. The source that William of Poitiers is using, a source I mentioned earlier, the Carmen, the Song of the Battle of Hastings, which we think now was made before the spring of 1068, so it's the most contemporary source of all, talks about Harold getting killed by a Norman death squad. Half a dozen or so men led by William go up to him and sort of and, and single him out and hack him down. Now, you know, again, it's like you're, you're, you're comparing, you're, you're weighing a tapestry, an embroidery against a poem. You know, there's a lot of artistic license there. So, you know, maybe there were tens of thousands of arrows loose that day. Maybe he got an arrow in the eye. But our most closely contemporary narrative source says that he was done in by a dedicated death squad. And the only other thing I can think to strengthen that as a, as a more likely scenario is that William of Poitiers, who is William the Conqueror's 
own chaplain doesn't repeat that story. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument from silence. But we know that Poitiers had a copy of the Carmen in front of him because he parrots the bits of it he likes. And other bits of it that he doesn't like, he, he directly challenges. He says, some people will tell you this, but this wasn't true. When he gets to the death of Harold, rather than refuting it, he just skips over it. So you could see that as a sort of a, an, a, a sort of a silent endorsement, if you like, of the fact that the the Carmen's story was accurate, but William of Poitiers didn't want to go into any of those details because it made William look less than chivalrous. So, okay, all right, we need to uh, we need to rattle on because we've got a few more to go. Um, a, a, a sort of a quick counterfactual type one. Uh, where uh, Jamie Smith is asking, um, can you speculate about uh, what sort of reign Harold Godwinson would have had had he not died at Hastings? Oh, yeah, I saw that question. It's, it's a good question, but it's kind of those, one of those what-ifs that we don't really know. I mean, Harold had been um, a sort of power player since, well, since at least 1043, no. Yeah, 10... 10- no, no, yeah, 1043, 1045, I forget which. He was made, let's say the mid-1040s, he was made um, Earl of East Anglia. He later, 1053, when his father dies, is Earl of Wessex. And, you know, Harold, I mean, Harold is one of those characters who, who gets a good press. Um, and, you know, there's certain things about Harold's story which which are undeniable. Like his victory over Harold Hardrada is rightly the sort of stuff of later legend, you know, because it's a tremendous victory. Um, But the principal source for his career and the careers of his younger brother Tostig and the career of their father, Earl Godwin, is a source called The Life of King Edward, um, which is, as its title suggests, uh, ostensibly about Edward the Confessor. But it's it's originally it wasn't originally conceived as of as as a, as a, as a life of edward um its author openly admits midway through in 1066 that the nature of the work has changed because of the outcome of the battle of hastings he just says you know what am i to do now you know the, this 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 sort of uh, song of praise has become a tragedy uh, so i shall tell you about king edward and the many miracles that were sort of you know worked as a result of his influence but the the, the life of king edward as it's now called started off as as a song of praise to the godwin family so it was it's it goes on for pages about how wonderful godwin was he was like a father to the nation and his sons are these luminous heroes so um harold is 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 you know, he's, he's a sort of a superman, a demigod in that story. You know, he's sort of chivalrous, merciful. There was no, he was tall, handsome, uh, you know, nice to children and animals. He, it, it's, there is no, he really has no flaws. So, yes, he was, the, the Godwinsons are rising and rising throughout the 1050s. And, and um, uh, he's clearly a man, uh, an experienced man who people, certainly his own faction, which was, which was huge and dominant, wanted to be king. Um, and I dare say with all that sort of popular support that he cultivated, you know, he, he could have got on to have a long and successful reign. But we just don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm always wary of these figures through history that, you know, they have their, their stock is so high based on a tract that their family commissioned. You know, it's like the, the other the other one I always have in for in, in 30 seconds is William Marshall. And, you know, everyone says, William Marshall, the greatest knight of the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's a line borrowed from a book commissioned by his sons. I can go and get a mug, Dave, from my sons that they gave to me that says, world's greatest dad on it. But I have to accept the fact that might not be objectively true. I'm sure you're a very good dad, Mark. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, the English resistance. A couple of questions on that, uh, which we will combine. So Michael Allen asks, what happened to the former members of the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy who survived the Battle of Hastings? And then George Samuel asks, what was the resistance like after Hastings? So perhaps we could conflate those two. Yeah, well, it's not. I mean, it's not good at all uh, if you are an aristocrat. I mean, I, I I think I wrote an article for you a few years ago saying, um, you know, the I, I, it was a tragedy for the aristocracy, and there was there was some some blowback from that, saying, well, what about the poor people that suffered in the harrying of the north? And yeah, the the, the conquest leads to huge loss of human life uh, across all social classes, but in percentage terms, 
percentage terms, you know, per capita, it's 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 utterly devastating for the ruling class because the ruling class gets gets sort of removed entirely. The, the the data for this is Doomsday Book. So whilst in Doomsday Book you can see the population drop, for example, in Yorkshire of of you know hundreds of thousands as a result of the famine induced by the harrying. Um, when you look at the ruling class, the people who are the king's tenants in chief or their own tenants, the king's subtenants, you can see that you know there's maybe five hundred to a thousand tenants in chief, depending on who you ask. That's in ten sixty six. In ten eighty six, when Doomsday Book is compiled, out of those five hundred or a thousand, only thirteen names are English. So, in terms of the top layer of the aristocracy, the English have been reduced to a kind of a tiny fraction you know, less than 1% of the landholders. And, and that's even true if you look down at the, the king's subtenants, you know, there's seven or 8,000 names. Um, only 10% of that number are, are still English by 1086. Um, obviously, a lot of them die at the Battle of Hastings. A lot of them die in the subsequent rebellions and battles in the five years that follow. Um, some of them we know go abroad. Some go to Scandinavia, Um I, there's some, been some some good recent research um, based on later Scandinavian myths, and I think contemporary Byzantine sources pointing out that some of them relocated to um, Byzantium. Um, and I, I think in a lot of cases they are just suppressed, so they they have to accept the fact that they are no longer top ranking aristocrats, and they are suppressed into a sort of uh, a gentry class, or they you know so there's. They're they either flee, they're either killed, or they have to to sort of um, muck along in reduced circumstances, um, as you would expect once you are part, once you are being ruled by a new colonial overlord class. You know, I, I'm I'm speaking out of school here because I I'm not a student of uh, um, the you know the, the British in India, but you know similar sort of thing that you know there were people running the show, and then you have foreigners come in and say we're in charge now and um you can either collaborate and 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 and, and make do in reduced circumstances or you can get out so okay. that's what happens to them all right so speaking a little bit of the uh, resistance uh, and answering a, another question uh, from George Edward uh, Mannering uh, which um, excited a lot of um, responses i noticed on facebook from people uh, discussing this uh, was william really the brutal tyrant that many interpretations make him out to be yeah um well again i'm sort of going to set up my case with some caution here because um yeah there's no doubt i mean it it depends on 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 sort of how you're going to sort of categorize brutality i mean the thing the thing that william is famous for that sort of stains his reputation even by the early 12th century the person who really gives it to him with both barrels is Audric vitalis is the harrying of the north um because um Orderick says more than 100,000 people died as a result of the harrying, and that seems to be confirmed by Doomsday Book. You can see for Yorkshire alone a drop in population of that magnitude. So he has that hanging over him. And I, I, I recently did an article for you guys on the anniversary of the harrying, basically sort of finishing with that sentiment that Orderick says, well, you know, no, no earthly court can judge him, but God will sort him out on this score, you know. So there's that there's that sort of if you like uh genocidal um aspect to william's um uh, policies the thing that always bugs me though um is whenever william is shown uh, depicted in both documentaries and in dramas more more in documentaries in this country um is that he's sort of seen as some sort of sadistic maniac who goes around sort of doing politics by chopping off people's arms legs you know putting their eyes out um torturing them basically and the implication of this is that this is somehow novel and that no clean-limbed englishman like say harold godwinson would resort to such terrible you know foreign continental tactics um and in that case the op- in it's almost that the the opposite is true because while you have two or three instances where william um is described as having mutilated his enemies so there's an incident in alenson before his um before well, well before 1066 in the early 1050s there's a case uh with the um after the siege of ely in uh 1070 where he um he maims the the rebels he can get his hands on um 
this is kind of entirely par for the course in the 11th century, particularly in England. I mean, England for the last 200 years by this point has had Vikings running around, and they certainly sort of, you know, don't pat you on the head afterwards and say, don't do it again. You know, they will chop your head off or kill you in all kinds of grisly ways. One of the things that's curious about um, politics in England after William's accession is that it's very hard to find examples of aristocrats who are deliberately put to death. There's Earl Waltheof, who rebelled against William, or at least conspired against William in 1075. He has his head chopped off in the spring of 1076 at Winchester. Then, and he's an earl. He's uh, Earl of Northumbria. The next earl to be executed in England after Waltheof's death is the Earl of Athol, a Scottish nobleman, who was executed by Edward I in 1306, so 230 years after Earl Waltheof. So it's it's very possible, and it's not... This isn't my idea, this is an idea I've pinched from other historians, better historians like John Gillingham, you know, who advanced these ideas in the early 1990s. It's, it's arguable that William and the Normans introduced a uh, a new idea to English politics, which was you ought to be chivalrous. You'd be as unsparing and savage as you like in your warfare. But with from their point of view, from their point of view, the people who count, the people at the top of the tree, you don't lob people's heads off and execute them. You capture them, you put them away in castles, and if they promise to be very, very, very good, you ransom them and give them some of their lands back. Uh, that's chivalry in a nutshell. And you can see William doing that. So... You know, it, it, it's, it's a compl- it's a long answer, but it's a, I think it's, a, it's one that's worth worth dwelling on William's reputation because whilst he is savage in his warfare, as the Normans were, and, the, and contemporaries um, say this all the time, you know, they were fierce and savage in their warfare. In their politics, they didn't stab you to death when you were having dinner, which was the old English way of doing it, um, and they considered themselves more chivalrous. They looked upon the English way of doing things as barbarous. Okay, a a quick one um, from uh, Laura Lease. No, Laura Alice underscore XO. Uh, is it true that William the Conqueror spoke little English throughout his entire reign? Well, we don't know. The only comment we have on that is Orderic Vitalis, who's writing fifty years later, and he says that that uh, he's kind of characterising William's approach to England as a whole. And I think it's a fair characterisation. Is that William when he starts off? Uh, as a lot of kings do at the start of their reigns, you know, no one no one comes to power saying, I'm going to be a terrible president or I'm going to be a, a, a wicked, evil king. They all, you know, they are they have the crown put on their head. It's all very mysterious. Um, it's all very um, mystical. They are, they're anointed, they're blessed. Um, and they are told, you know, you must protect your people. You must, um, you know, defend the church, uh, et cetera. You must uphold the law. And they think, yeah, I'll do all that. I'm going to be a good king. And then, you know, the way they deal with the contingency of medieval politics, uh, that that's you know, it's, it's uh, they, they might end up having a reputation which uh, is not so good. Um, William, it seems, starts off intending to rule as good English king. His writs, to begin with, are issued in Old English. Um, he he initially has a blend of surviving English aristocrats and bishops at his court rubbing shoulders with Normans. But as the conquest kind of runs out of control in the years that follows and there are rebellions and repression year after year, within four or five years he gives up on that and embarks on a more repressive policy. And Orderick ties that to his um, attempts to learn English. Orderick says he tried to learn English but he lost interest in it basically. And that would be, I mean, that would fit well with his itinerary in the 1070s because he spends more of the 1070s out of England in Normandy than he does in England. So, um, you know, like a lot of us, he thinks, wouldn't it be nice to speak a second language? I should get some tapes, you know. And then he sort of says, nah, it's too difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right. We've got a a few on consequences, which I'm going to sort of conflate a bit. So we had Mike Metcalf who asked, why is the Norman Conquest so significant when the Vikings had conquered England a short time before? Then Chris George, did the conquest fundamentally change the British Isles in the medium to long term? But I think I'm going to put uh, this one from Mark James to you, which is a a more of a comment than a question, but one that you can probably answer and, and tackle the rest of it, which is the Norman Conquest was the best thing that ever happened to England. Oh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I mean, you know, it's people have been taking sides on this since the Norman Conquest itself, you know, and 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 sort of 
every age is kind of you know seen. It's, it's because it's because um, the conquest is such a watershed. You know, so um, particularly in the, the uh, 17th century, again, not a period I know a great deal about, but in the 17, the wars of the 17th century, the civil wars, um, you know, you had a parliamentarian saying, well, all this kind of um, divine right of kings, this goes back to the conquest. Before the conquest, you know, it was all much freer and better and it was golden age, the Norman yoke um, theory. Um, I think... I mean, to, uh, not to dodge the question entirely, um, but to sort of make it to, to 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 sort of answer the previous question about you know why was the conquest so important when fifty just fifty years earlier, um, uh, Canute and the Danes had conquered England. I think the thing that makes the conquest so fascinating and so worthy of study is that England is changed by the conquest. I think m- more than any other event in its history. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of a seismic shift in the way England is is governed, um, and comparing it with the Danish conquest of fifty years earlier. I mean, yes, uh, the, the Danish conquest, for example, is very bloody. Canute starts his reign with lots of executions, but by the time of Canute's death, most of the Danes he's installed as as earls have disappeared. They've been redeployed to Scandinavia, or they've died, and they have been replaced by new Englishmen. Prime example being Earl Godwin of Wessex. So the Danish conquest shakes up the aristocracy, but it doesn't really change the way land is held. It doesn't change the uh, the, the, the the language that is spoken. Um, it doesn't have any really noticeable impact on architecture um, or religion. Um, whereas if you look at what the Normans do in 1066, you know, every church, every major church, every cathedral, every major abbey is ripped down and rebuilt. Um, we've already talked about chivalry. We see a, a sudden uh, drop in the number of slaves leading to the abolition of slavery. Um, so I think by sort of every measurable um, uh you know every measure that's possible the norman conquest sees this this huge and sweeping change okay so, yeah okay a couple of quick random ones before we wrap up uh mm-hmm. did the normans introduce rabbits to ireland <laughs> asked by uh jen m kerry who is a, some sort of irish bunny fan never had the rabbits question before um not something I deal with in the book, not something I've done a great deal of research on. My dim understanding of the whole controversial and thorny question of rabbits is that I don't think there's any evidence for them in Anglo-Saxon England. I'm quite prepared to be corrected because I know there's a lot of stuff being done at the moment on the sort of the the, the archaeology of this sort of thing. Um, you certainly see um, post-conquest into the 12th century, the introduction introduction of, of rabbit warrens, you know, by on aristocratic estates. So they're being sort of kept and cultivated and protected um, from, you know, uh, natural predators um, after the conquest. I think I read somewhere that, that, you know, that it's possible that there were sort of rabbit bones in Roman villas, fish born in Sussex seems to ring a bell. Um but yeah, I think it basically holds true. As, as I say, answering this out of school, uh, the, the Normans introduced rabbits to England and therefore, I suppose by extension, Ireland. But I'm quite happy to be corrected because okay. Okay. I have neglected to... this, this issue. <laughs> we'll have to come back to that, uh, Jen yeah. and Kerry. So, uh, so look out for that in a future issue of uh, BBC Astro Magazine. Cover or, feature, or I expect. Be a belter, yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, uh, and then uh, a super quick one um, from Benjamin T.H. Russell. Uh, where did the Norman haircut come from and why did they start doing to it? Uh, why did they start doing it? So I guess that refers to um, to how they look in the biotapestry. In the biotapestry, yeah, it's a good question. I don't have a, don't have a definitive answer. I'm not sure we can definitively answer anything on haircuts from a thousand years ago, but... Um, there's a, I was recently, as you say, I was, I'm doing this book on the Anglo-Saxons and I, I, I was spending a lot of time on the Danish conquest. There's a letter um, from one anonymous Englishman to his brother lambasting him for adopting Danish fashions. He says, why do you dress like a Dane? You know, why do you disrespect the custom of your ancestors? And one of the things he says is, why do you have your hair cut in this heathen fashion? which is kind of shaved up the back. And he says, with blinded eyes. And I can only imagine with blinded eyes, meaning with a long fringe, you Mm. know, uh, hanging over your eyes. Exactly what you see on the biotapestry. They've got hair shaved really or closely cropped right up 
to their crown almost, and great big long curtains, as we would have called them in the 1990s, you know, right across their foreheads. So it it's certainly seems to be something that the Danes were doing or the Vikings were doing in the 11th century, and I guess it's just, you know, what the Normans did as well. Mm, but the implication is no clean, living Anglo-Saxon type would have their hair cut in such a ridiculous fashion. And when you see the um, the English on the biotapestry, they do indeed have very different hairstyles. They have long, flowing locks and long, flowing moustaches. Yes, they do. Yeah, they're brilliant. Excellent. Okay, right. One more question, and uh, you've only got one word to answer with, I'm afraid. Okay. So uh, this is History Ramsey. If you had to explain the impact of the Norman Conquest in one word, what would it be? Um, you can't say... Um, unrivaled. <laughs> Excellent. There is no more important event and consequently no more important book for you to download <laughs> for one ninety nine than the Norman Conquest. Excellent. Okay, brilliant. Well, that has uh, that has answered all the questions. So that's everything you ever wanted to know about the Norman Conquest, but we're afraid to ask with Mark Morris. Thank you very much, Mark. My pleasure. That was Mark Morris. For more on this topic, you can read his book, The Norman Conquest, which is published by Windmill. If you enjoyed this interview, then also keep an eye out for Mark's upcoming book, The Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginnings of England, which is due out this autumn. Feel free to drop us a line with ideas of topics and historians you'd like us to cover in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Julie Wheelwright about women warriors through history. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.